Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I ask if you would to find in your copy of Scripture, John chapter 4. Have you ever met a know-it-all? I remember, I think I was about 6th grade, I had a friend in class tell me that I was a know-it-all. I didn't really like that. I was kind of offended by it. And I got to thinking, he's probably right. I probably was acting like a know-it-all. Since then, there have been a few other times in my life where somebody has called me out for acting like a know-it-all when I probably don't have any business speaking on that particular subject or that particular issue. What about you? Do you you know a know-it-all? There's someone in your life where you realize if you talk to them, they're going to give you all the advice you would ever possibly need about any subject whatsoever that you could bring up. Maybe some of you are going to have to spend Thanksgiving or Christmas with some of those folks in the coming, in the coming weeks. Now, when we want information about something, we want to go to an expert. If, if I need someone to give me direction related to my medical care. Folks, I'm going to go to my doctor. He's trained for that. Uh, And and I'm going to go to him because I probably would do much better going to him than going to WebMD and trying to self-diagnose what's going on in my life. If I need legal advice, I'm going to go to a lawyer like Lee Bentley. Uh, In other words, when we really want information about a particular subject, we want to go to the expert. The person who should know all that is, needs to be known about that particular issue. Over the course of this series, Revelation and Response in Biblical Worship, we've been exploring what the Bible says about worship. and We've looked for, at different categories and events and stories, and all of it comes from God. He's speaking through a prophet or through a spokesperson in a, in a particular text, giving us understanding about what worship is. But when it comes down to it, this text in John chapter 4 is Jesus himself defining worship. You can't get any more expert than that. There's no better definition or statement about worship in all of Scripture, no more clear definition of worship in all of Scripture than from the very lips of Jesus in this wonderful encounter in John chapter 4. So we're going to read, begin reading in verse 16, just to set it up. Jesus had to go through Samaria on a particular journey. And while he was going through Samaria, he stopped and talked with a woman at the well. A woman who was there at the wrong time of day. She was there at the wrong time of day because she didn't want to be around other women because she was an adulteress. She was notorious in her behavior, so she wanted to be kind of away. And Jesus interacted with her. Kind of challenging customs, a man speaking to a woman and a Jew speaking to a Samaritan. Jesus engaged her in conversation because he wanted her soul. And so he'd engaged her on the topic of water because the well was there, living water. And then pick up with me in verse 16. Jesus said to the woman, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. 
For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called the Christ and when He comes He'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I speak to you am He. We offer four specific principles for God-pursued worshipers. In other words, what does Jesus have to say about worship? And let's draw some principles out from the text about what we can discern from worship from this encounter and particularly from Jesus' statements. Here's the first one. If we're not careful, we'll use worship tensions as an excuse for not confessing our own sins or for not dealing with our own soul. Uh, this particular woman, when Jesus said to her, uh, you, you go call your husband. He was kindly, compassionately, but very truthfully dealing with the sinfulness that was in her own heart. Uh, folks, in order for salvation to take place in your life and my life, we have to have our sin addressed. Jesus dealt with her sin. He pointed it out because he wanted her heart. He wanted her life. He wanted her to be forgiven. So he called her out for her sin. Her response was not confession repentance or contrition, her response was, I perceive you're a prophet. Now, now, which mountain should we worship at? Should we worship at Jerusalem or here at Mount Gerizim? Now, we're going to come to that question in a moment. There is legitimacy to the question. But notice what she does. She uses the tension about worship as a feint or a distraction so that she doesn't have to address what's going on in her own heart and life. In other words, she moved the conversation. She didn't want to think about her own sinfulness. She rather wanted to have a conversation about worship. And we need to be careful that we're not guilty of doing the same kinds of things. Where we allow tensions that we may have, preferences or desires or longings, and those are not wrong in and of themselves, and they're not wrong to have. We need to be careful that we don't allow those to control us so much that they keep us from letting God deal with our own hearts and deal with our own sinfulness and deal with our own selfishness. The other week I was preaching a sermon on worship and I was talking about some of the things that keep us from worship, the idolatries that keep us from worship. The next day I visited one of our church members, Kim Reed, who's dealing with a couple of different forms of cancer and dealing with a couple of different forms of cancer treatment. We were talking about what was going on in her life and I was praying with her. And uh, she said, Pastor, I I think there's something you missed in that list of idolatries that you shared that that might be beneficial for for us to be aware of. And she said, "I, I think one of the things that you missed is that one thing that we idolize is control. And one of the reasons we're really afraid to worship is we're afraid of losing control. We're afraid of losing this situation and it getting beyond us or getting out of our hand. And I think that's exactly what was going on with the woman in this conversation. She was afraid 
of opening her heart up to this stranger that was talking to her about her past, about her immoralities, about her sinfulness, about her notorious behavior. And so she shifted the conversation. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I've been in Baptist churches for a long time, 42 years. I've seen tensions and frustrations rise up about style of worship and about, about instrumentation and about song choices and all of those things. And, and I've watched a lot of people act in a lot of ways that's not very Christ-like or Christian. And I wonder sometimes if the reason that's the case, and I'm not talking about having a preference in a conversation. I'm talking about people who actually have bad attitudes and sinful attitudes and ungodly spirits because they're not getting their way. I wonder if sometimes... Really what's happening is they're putting on a front. They're, they're, they're distracting from the real issue. And the real issue is a sinful heart that God needs to change. And I'm going to tell you something, Christian. If we're not careful what we will do, we will allow things that can be debates and conversations to push us away from what God really wants to do in our lives, which is investigate our own hearts. Because the real issue at stake in church life, the real issue at stake in worship is not... Styles or places or locations or songs or song choices or sermons or sermon length. Those are all factors, but the real issue in worship is whether we have a relationship with God or not. And the only thing that keeps us from a relationship with God is the sinfulness of our own hearts. And so as we continue to work through this text and as we continue to work through this series, let's keep in mind that if we're not careful, we'll use our tensions theological or worship or otherwise, as an excuse for not dealing with our own souls. Let me give you a second principle that flows out of the text. We need to remember that worship is not primarily about geography, form, or style, but about relationship. So the woman did ask a question that had some legitimacy. She said, should we worship on Gerizim or should this mountain, or should we worship in Jerusalem? Because you Jews say we ought to worship in Jerusalem. She was referencing Mount Gerizim, which in the Old Testament... Book of Deuteronomy, there was a particular uh, uh, event where when the people of Israel entered the promised land, part of the tribes, half the tribes stood on Mount Gerizim and they spoke the blessings to the people. And then the other part of the tribes stood on Mount Ebal, which is a, a mountain in that same region, that same area, and they spoke the cursings to the people. And so that mountain had a particular uh, specific worship reference point for the people of Israel. And, and the Samaritans had owned that mountain because it was in their, in their region and that was where they worshipped. That's where they said they needed to meet with God. And of course the Jewish people said, no, we meet with God in the temple. That's where the sacrificial system is. That's where the altars are. That's where the priests are. And she's, she's asking a legitimate question, uh, using it as a feint, using it as kind of a distraction. But she's asking, so where do we worship? Do we worship here? Do we worship there? And I think that that betrays a confusion in her own life and maybe even in our lives that worship is tied to a particular place or a particular form because if you're talking about worshiping in the temple, you need a priest and you need an altar and you need a sacrificial system. You need, in other words, a set of rituals that, that we associate with worship. And what Jesus says is worship is neither in those places. He said Woman, I'm telling you, there's a time coming when you'll neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem, but we'll worship God in spirit and in truth. In other words, the emphasis that Jesus is pointing to is on relationship 
with God, not on location, not on space, not on time, not on form, not on circumstance, but on a relationship with God. Graham Kendrick puts it this way. He said, in his conversation with the Samaritan woman, Jesus was announcing the arrival of a new age in which worship would no longer be seen to depend upon buildings, holy places, ceremonies, rituals, and sacrifices, but on a personal relationship with God. All those things had been symbols of what was to come, and now Jesus himself was announcing the reality of the fulfillment of all that Judaistic worship had foreshadowed. The Holy of Holies was no longer shut off from the common man or woman, but it was open to all who come by the way of Jesus. Yet more astounding, he was introducing God as a personal loving father who actively seeks worshipers. So while there's nothing wrong with having a form or a liturgy, and we have a form and a structure in our worship service, there's nothing wrong with having a pattern, there's nothing wrong with having means for worship, what Jesus is saying to the woman, and by extension all of us, is that those are not the primary means of worshiping God. God is spirit and we worship Him in a relationship with Him. The primary factor of worshiping God is making sure we're in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Here's principle number three. God pursues worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. So if we've looked at some of the kind of uh, um, negatives, I guess you would say, or some of the cautions, what does positively God seek after? He seeks worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And Jesus said it this way. He said, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. What does Jesus mean when He says God is spirit? Well, I I think it's very clear that God is not an embodied deity. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on human flesh. He's incarnate in human flesh. But God is not an embodied deity. And that the the specific uh, kind of contrast here that Jesus is making is God is not bound to a location. In other words, if God were an embodied being, He would be present where His body is. That's not God. God is not an embodied being. He's not bound by space or time or location or geography. He extends beyond all of those things. In other words, He cannot be contained. Indescribable, the song we sang, He's uncontainable. He can't be contained in our space. He can't be contained in our sanctuary or a temple can't even be contained in the earth itself. He's uncontainable. God it, it supersedes all of that, which means that there's not a specific location that is more that, that is the place for worship more than any other location is the place for worship. That's the thing. God is not bound by time or space or geography. He is spirit, and so when we worship Him, we must worship in spirit and truth. Let me make an Old Testament connection here. What, what do I mean by this? Well, in the, in the book of 1 Kings, the Syrians had attacked the people of Israel, and they lost the battle. Uh, and uh, then in the second battle, when the Syrians came to try to defeat Israel, this is the conversation, this is 1 Kings 20. A man of God came to the king of Israel, and he said, Thus says the Lord... Because the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills, but not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this multitude in your hand, so you shall know that I am the Lord. And they camped opposite one another seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, 100,000 foot soldiers on one day. The implication is, God is not bound by a specific 
location. In the ancient world, gods were tribal gods or geographical gods. My God is the God of the hills. Your God is the God of the valleys. We'll meet somewhere in between and see which one wins. That's kind of the mindset of the deities of the ancient world. What the Bible clearly articulates is not a God who is an American God or a Chinese God or an Israelite God or an African God, but He is God. He is the Lord, the King of kings, the the creator of all, the sustainer of all, the savior of all people who would come to Him by way of Jesus. He's not bound to a particular space. He's not bound to a particular geographical region. So He's correcting her misunderstanding of worship. God is spirit. Not bound to a location. And so all who worship Him must then worship in what? Spirit and in truth. What does He mean by that? How do we worship in spirit and truth? Is He saying that somehow we must worship internally and not externally? I don't think that's what He's saying at all because we are embodied beings. I can no more worship God in my spirit without my body being present than I have to be present, right? That's part of it. And Paul says in Romans chapter 12, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. But what does he mean when he says to us, we're to worship God in spirit and in truth? It means that the internal part of us has to be present because it's relational. Worship with God is not just external. It's not just form related. It is internal, relationally related. See, Jesus said of the Pharisees, quoting Isaiah, Isaiah said of you rightly, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, what Jesus was saying is the Pharisees are good at the form of worship. Well, they show up at temple, and they bring their sacrifices, they bring their offerings, they do all the outward stuff that worship, that looks like worship, but their heart is not anywhere near that. And what he's saying to us, and we're saying to the woman in this text is, we're to worship in spirit. It means in a relationship with God, our internal part has to be present in the moment. We have to be present in relationship with God, or it's not genuine worship. Spirit and truth. Let me illustrate, because uh, y'all, are, y'all are sort of with me this morning. Maybe it's because my, sor- my voice is sort of here this morning. I'm not entirely sure. Let me illustrate in a way that I hope will get a laugh or two. Any of you husbands, have you ever been angry at your wife and unloaded the dishwasher at the same time? Anybody done that? If you haven't, I have. I'll confess. And there have been times where I've been frustrated when my wife didn't agree with me and there's been kind of at odds. And in that frustration, I went to do a chore. And, you know, sometimes I set the plates down a little more loudly than maybe they needed to be put in the cabinet to let known the house that I was at anger, right? So physically I was present. My body was doing the chore. My heart was not in it. Do you get the difference? No brownie points were being earned. There was no love being shown. This wasn't an act of kindness. It was an act of... You know, frustration and anger. You understand the difference, right? What it means to do something physically, but your heart not be present. And that's what Jesus is saying when we worship. Yes, it matters that we're here present. That we open our mouths and sing a song. That that we engage physically. We can't not engage physically. But our hearts have to be a part of the event. Worshiping in spirit means we're engaged in a relationship with the living God. And so when I open my mouth to sing, it is something that flows out of my heart. 
flows out of my relationship with God. Worship in spirit, that's what it means to be in spirit in relationship with the living God. Spirit and in truth. And they're connected. You can't worship in spirit and not be in truth. You can't worship in truth and not be in spirit. They're connected by conjunction under the same preposition. The emphasis is that worship is spirit and truth worship. At the very least, truth worship means that it's underneath the framework of Scripture. That God is the author of how we worship. We can't worship falsely and it be received by God as a pleasing sacrifice to Him. It has to be true worship underneath the framework of Scripture. There are some things that are not worship that are claimed to be worship. Let me give an example. Uh, Over the years, the last 30 or 40 years, there have been some churches that have adopted a seeker kind of mentality in their worship services and some of those churches would would bring a praise band up and they would they would be playing a secular song sometimes to connect with the theme but a lot of times just to kind of be trendy okay that may be good music but that's not worship because that's not the the lyrics there that are sung in a secular song are not God-glorifying, they're not truth-filled, they're not framed by Scripture. So whatever else we could call that, it's not worship. And so worship has to be in spirit, there needs to be an emotive connection, a relational connection, but it needs to be in in truth underneath the authority of Scripture. At the very least, it needs to be scriptural. also needs to be truthful, I mean, meaning that we mean it. A lot of times, we'll sing a song... And because we're not in the moment, we don't really think about what we're singing. And, we want, and, and it could be wondered, do we really mean what we're singing? Or do we really believe what we're singing? Spirit and truth worship carries with the idea that we're in the moment, that, that it's internal in a relationship with God, but it's underneath the authority of Scripture. And, and beyond that, spirit and truth worship is Christ-centered because Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus testified to that. John 16, Jesus said, The Spirit, who is the one who helps us relate to the Father, He's the the person of the Trinity that gives us relationship with God. He indwells us as followers of Christ. And, And so, in John 16, He's to lead us into all truth. So, what's He to lead us into? Lead us into relationship, or continued relationship, with Jesus Christ. In other words, spirit and truth worship is about Jesus, which leads us to the leads us to this quote from John Piper about truth and emotion, how we make sure that we have both of those in our worship. He said this truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full or half full of artificial admirers. Some of you have been to some of those churches. Man, it's cold, it's like frozen in the room, and it has nothing to do with the Air conditioning temperature. There's just nothing happening in that group of believers. That's truth without emotion. He goes on to say, On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional, who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God... Rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. Piper reflects on something that ought to be true every time we gather as a body of believers. There ought to be a deep sense of emotion. When, when Sarah at the 9.30 service and now in the 11 o'clock service 
She had, she had an emotional experience thinking about singing about her Jesus who was her Savior. It meant something to her. And I, I hope by extension that that meant something to us as we, then we were able to reflect on what Jesus had done to bring us into salvation. But that's not just an emotional moment. We can replicate emotional moments all day long in all sorts of scenarios with movies and songs and, and scenes and images. But it's... Emotion that is related to the truth about what God has done to bring us in relationship with Himself. And it's emotion in the best sense connected to Jesus and undergirded by the framework of Scripture and by the authority of Scripture. In other words, when we gather as Christians, we ought to gather and be emotional about our relationship with God. We ought to put a smile on our face. We ought to have deep-seated joy that exuberates in our experiences of worship. But it ought not just be frivolous experiential moments. It ought to be tied to the very truths that we find in Scripture. Michael Bleeker puts it this way. He says, our biblical theology or our study of God should inform and propel our doxology or our praise to God. That's why we study theology on Wednesday nights. That's why we try to make sure that as I preach, I tell you this is what God says. This is how we make sense of it. Because that truth-framed baseline undergirds the emotion that we should have when we sing praise to God. Here's principle number four. And this is what it's all about. True worship always leads to Christ. Always. It's Christ-centered. Always it's about Jesus. The woman says here, uh, after this, and by the way, think about this for just a moment. This clear definition and explanation of worship did not happen in a synagogue. Didn't happen in the Sermon on the Mount. This wasn't a message Jesus preached in Jerusalem right around the temple, although he preached messages there. It isn't a message he brought his disciples around and said, Hey guys, listen to this. I'm going to tell you what true worship is all about. That's not where Jesus gave this statement. He said it to a sinful woman, broken down by her own unrighteousness, because he wanted her to meet him and experience salvation. It's a beautiful depiction of exactly what the purpose of worship is all about. It's to get us to Jesus. She says to him in response to his statement about worship, I know that when Messiah comes, he'll tell us these things. He'll tell us all things. And then Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. It's fascinating because if you think about the previous chapter... Nicodemus, Jesus is talking to one of the Pharisee, one of the religious leaders. He didn't affirm his Messiahship to Nicodemus. In fact, this is poignantly pointed out if you're watching The Chosen, the, the, the television series that kind of depicts Jesus. This particular episode of how it, Jesus is introducing himself, his Messiahship is beautifully depicted in that, in that series. And I love it that he said to her, a Samaritan woman, unwanted, unloved, unliked, had, had left husbands or been left by husbands, immoral, sinful, wicked. He said to her, I am the one that you're waiting for. I am the Messiah. And in the English translation, it says, I who speak to you am he. There's a phrase that, that is in between I and am. But in the Greek language, it, it is not, there's not a phrase in between there. It's ego me, I am. Jesus is saying to her, 
Just like he would say and affirm through the rest of the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life, I am the living water, I am the good shepherd, I am the door of the sheep. John chapter 8 when he said, I am, before Abraham was, I am, and the Jewish leaders wanted to stone him because he's saying none other than, I am God. He's making a self-referential claim to deity. I am not only Messiah, but I am God, and I am in your presence, and you're in my presence, and that's what you need to know. True worship always leads to Christ. Always. There's some implications from that that I, I think will help us as we continue our journey through this series of worship. One is, true Christ-centered worship is always evangelistic. I, I, nearly every time I preach a sermon, I give an invitation. And, and I fully expect and desire and, and long for those of you that don't yet know Jesus to put your trust in Jesus. And, and the worship service is, the invitation to the worship service is a very appropriate time for that to take place. Not the only time, maybe not even the most appropriate time for someone to come to faith in Jesus. But it is certainly an appropriate time. And, and it's because when we lift Jesus up and point to Him, it's always evangelistic. This conversation about worship was about a woman's heart being changed. A woman's life being redeemed. A woman's sin being forgiven. It's evangelistic in nature. Folks, when we gather and when we worship, it's to be evangelistic. We're to lift up Christ. Why do you think emotion matters? Why do you think truth matters? People won't get saved without truth. But they also won't get saved if they look around and they think we don't believe what we're singing and what, who we're worshiping. And I've been to some places... I've preached in some churches where I don't want to go back because I'm not quite sure that they really believe what we're there for or believe who we're there for. And so I go in and I'm like, I'm not sure they believe it. I'm not sure it means anything to them. Folks, the reason our worship ought to mean something, the reason we ought to be emotive, the reason we ought to declare truth as loudly and as gloriously as we can, the reason we ought to smile because there are folks around here who haven't yet put their faith and trust in Jesus. And you know what? I want them to look around the room and I want them to think, man, they got something. I don't know what it is, but I want to meet this person that they have. True worship that points to Jesus is always evangelistic. Here's something else. True worship that leads to Jesus is corrective. Jesus said to her, you worship what you don't know, we worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is not afraid to correct us. And some of us, myself included, need correction. I need correction. I need God to point out to me from Scripture where I'm missing it. And you know what? When we gather and I get that pointed out to me and I have a time in that prayer time to confess and repent, it's like at every Sunday is an opportunity for us to get together and testify again that we've been forgiven through Jesus. That's healthy. That's good for us as followers of Jesus. Beyond that, when Jesus said salvation is from the Jews, just think about what he was thinking when he said that. Salvation is from the Jews because I'm a Jew and I'm standing right here. I came through the Jewish line. I am salvation. And of course, she met the Savior in that moment. True worship that leads to Christ is also corporate. What do I mean by that? It's, it's Trinitarian. Get this, the Father, God the Father, is seeking worshipers. Have you ever thought about that? 
Just think about it. Jesus said God is seeking people to worship him. And he's not doing that because God's some egotistic deity who has to have people worshiping. No, worshiping God, there's nothing greater. There's no experience any of us will ever have that is greater than worshiping God. None. That's why all of eternity is going to be filled with our praise and adoration of the God who is worthy of our praise and our adoration. And it's hard to believe because sometimes we equate the experiences of worship at church with what heaven's going to be like. And I remember as a kid thinking, oh my gosh, if, if this service is what heaven's going to be like, I am bored out of my mind. And some of you have been in churches where everything is so slow. It's like, I can feel that worship is eternal. (laughs) It just keeps going and going. God the Father seeks worshipers through Jesus the Son who saves by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Listen, God has forever been in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And will forever be in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a perfect love relationship from eternity past to eternity future. In other words, God relationally is community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so worship at its best when it's Christ-centered is always communal. It's not that it can't be private. It's got to be private. You and I need to meet with God, open God's word, pray and talk with God. But at its best, it's communal because it's a reflection of the God who saved us. The reason we need you here and the reason you need to be here is because when we sing our voices raised in harmony or we open scripture and quote it together or we sit and we unpack the truth that that God speaks to us from his word, the reason we do that together, the reason that it's beautiful is because it is a glorious depiction of the relationship that God has internally, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's a depiction of that when we gather as followers of Jesus. Let me tell you something about this kind of worship. It's life-changing. You don't leave the same when you meet Jesus. This woman ran away. She ran off. She ran off to her village and she said, Come and hear the man who told me everything that I've ever done. Can he not be the Christ? She wasn't the same. She was changed. She was redeemed. She experienced forgiveness. She was different. And folks... Her life was pretty, pretty well miserable prior to Christ. An outcast, looking for love among men who were not giving her the satisfaction that she needed, the, the, the help, the relational connection that she needed. She was living in shame, she was living in sin, and yet she met Jesus and she wasn't the same. I'll never forget that moment more than 20 years ago when I was 18 years old, leading into that week before I went to camp, the weight that I felt about my sinfulness, the fact that I was trying to make sense of faith and I was holding up my self-righteousness before God as some kind of, um, some kind of a trophy and saying, God, I've got to be saved because of all these things that I do. And the weight was bearing down on my shoulders and on my soul that week that I went to camp. I'll never forget it. I'll also never forget 
A moment when God's Holy Spirit broke through my sinful, self-righteous pride and helped me realize it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. And brought me to a place where I confessed my own unrighteousness. And I trusted in Jesus alone to be my Savior. And I want to tell you something, folks. I've not ever been the same since. That burden is gone. That worry and fear about eternity has left. Jesus is there. He met me. He changed me. And I am not the same. And I'll never forget. For me, I won't forget the day. I won't forget the year. It was a Wednesday, by the way. July 8th, 1998. I won't forget that. And some of you may not be able to remember the day and the year. That's not the important part. But you'll never forget the moment. You won't forget the sin that you carried and the forgiveness that God gave. You won't forget meeting Jesus. He made you different just like He made this woman different. Just like He made the crowds that came from Sychar and heard Him preach different. Just like He made the disciples different. So He changed them. He made them into God-pursued worshipers. You'll never forget that. Maybe you're here this morning and you've not met Jesus yet. Maybe you're a child. Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you're an adult. You've not experienced the life-changing forgiveness that God offers through Jesus. I'm going to invite you at this invitation to put your faith and trust in Christ. Would you confess your sins? Would you believe on Jesus alone to be your Savior? If you want to know how to do that, I'm available at the invitation. I'm available after the worship service. I'd love nothing more than to tell you how you can trust in Jesus. Christian, here's the invitation for you. I know you know somebody who hasn't met Jesus yet. I got to thinking about this beautiful display down here in front of the, the podium. You know, it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of effort for there to be a fruitful crop of anything. You know what? That family member, that child, that teenager, that neighbor, that coworker, that husband, that wife that does not yet know Jesus, keep praying for him. I love how this story began. John 4, Jesus said, I have to go to Samaria. God had an appointment for Jesus to meet a sinful woman at a well near Sychar. Here's what I want to ask of you, Christian. At the invitation... If you're able, would you come to the altar and pray? If you're not able, stay at your seat and pray that God would ordain an appointment for somebody that you know that needs Jesus. Would you pray for that? Would you pray that God would seek after that loved one, that He would seek them and make them a worshiper, turn them into a worshiper that brings glory to His name? Stand with me, if you will. Father, It should humble us forever and for always that you would seek after people like us to be your worshipers. We thank you, Lord God, that you looked down at us and our sinfulness and our depravity and you didn't reject us outright. But you sent your son Jesus to a cross for our sins you sent your Holy Spirit to bring us conviction and salvation. 
We thank you for that privilege. Help us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and truth. For those in the room that have not yet trusted Christ, for those, Lord, that were burdened for, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, we pray, Lord, that you would appoint for them a meeting with Christ, that they might be forever changed by meeting the Jesus who came to be their Savior and Redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.